Hello everyone, my name is uh, Ravi Kumar, President of Infosys. Welcome to this new chapter of Trailblazers. Uh, today we have uh, a new guest on our, um, on our uh, chapter today, Nicholas Dirks, the President and CEO of uh, New York Academy of Sciences. Um, I've actually interacted with Nick as a part of, the, uh, part of uh, the Board of Governors of the New York Academy of Sciences where I represent. Um, deeply honored and I have the pleasure of uh, interacting with Nick. Uh, I learned significantly from the from those interactions, very enriched in terms of the cross-functional knowledge he gets to uh, the, the, the New York Academy, as well as uh, a variety of uh, topics of great interest to me. Uh, you know, uh, Nick was the former chancellor of the University of California, Berkeley, author of numerous books on South Asian culture and history a historian, an anthropologist, taught at um, a number of universities, a very illustrious and successful career in higher education. Uh, thank you, Nick, for joining us today uh, for our uh, Trailblazers chapter today. It's great to be here, Ravi, and great to be with you. Thank you so much. So, Nick, I want to tee up my first question to you. Uh, you've had such an illustrious career in uh, higher education, serving as a chancellor of the University of California at Berkeley, dean at Columbia, professor at the University of Michigan and many others. What really inspired you to join uh, the New York Academy of Sciences? Um, very different kind of a job and different kind of a role. And how do you draw from the diverse set of experiences as a historian, an anthropologist, a professor, a university administrator, to your current job of uh, being the CEO of uh, the Academy? Well, uh, thank you for uh, saying that I had an illustrious uh, uh, career. I taught at a number of universities, as you said, and, uh, and was very happy being a professor and uh, working in the fields of history and anthropology, working on South Asia, writing books about uh, history of the caste system and things that you know are uh, still of great interest to me. But when I was at Columbia, I had the opportunity to become a Dean of the Arts and Sciences. And I found it just a fascinating opportunity to learn much more about all the different parts of the university from the sciences, both the basic and uh, theoretical sciences uh, to the applied and, uh, and, and more um, engineering uh, focused sciences across the social sciences and humanities and in the arts as well. And for me, it just opened up uh, uh, many parts of the university that I had only sort of seen from a distance before. I had the good fortune of, of, of working to, to, to build and design a new science building that was an interdisciplinary science building in, at Columbia. Uh, and I was able to work with some wonderful, wonderful scientists as well as uh, scholars and researchers in a variety of different fields. And I realized that you know, some of the same wanderlust that had taken me as a, as a, young, uh, as a young academic to uh, small villages in South India to learn more about the world uh, was also propelling me to learn more about the different uh, things that go on in the university outside of the two departments where I had uh, where I had uh, appointments and affiliations. When I was at Columbia, I had a number of opportunities to go off and lead other universities. I chose to go to Berkeley because, of course, it is a great university, but also because as a public university committed to serving the public good, both in California and around the world, 
it too gave me opportunities I hadn't had before to see how a great research university could also put such extraordinary emphasis on access, on uh, recruiting students from all kinds of different backgrounds uh, to the university to have the opportunity to study with Nobel laureates and, and great, great scholars. And it was, uh, in some sense, that kind of move from being more of an academic to being more of an uh, actor in the space of higher education, trying to bring the advantages of great research universities to bear on the lives of so many more people than I had originally been able to do, that made me think that really, uh, uh, at this point in my career, at this point in my life, I wanted to find ways in which I could have a great impact. So when I stepped down from UC Berkeley, I could have gone back to the faculty as many, many former administrators do. But when I was approached uh, by the New York Academy of Sciences, and I will say I was approached in the first instance by John Sexton, who had been a, a president of NYU, a good friend and, and colleague during my time, both at Columbia and Berkeley. Uh, uh, but John had been the chair of the board of the New York Academy. And he said, you know, this is something you should really look at because it has uh, it has this uh, set of programs uh, and it has this network of extraordinary people that will connect your life in the university with your world at Berkeley where you were trying to uh, to bring uh, academic knowledge to bear on, on, on the world and, and, and come up with all kinds of positive outcomes. So I came to the academy because it really did seem like the appropriate next chapter. It's a 204 year old institution that's had uh, uh, illustrious membership from Thomas Jefferson to Charles Darwin, uh, and more recently, uh, even in my own field of anthropology, from Franz Boas, the founder of the first American Department of Anthropology, and namely at Columbia, and Margaret Mead, who was the vice president of the Academy for many years in the 50s and 60s. And I came to see also that the Academy really did bring together the, uh, the best of science with a kind of public mission that I found very compatible. Uh, so it was, it was a great opportunity to continue doing some of the things that I'd been doing at Berkeley. Obviously it's very different, no faculty, no students directly, but we have education programs, uh, we support research, uh, we administer awards for uh, great scientists, frequently for younger scientists at early stages of their careers. We have programs in nutrition, including uh, very extensive programming uh, in nutrition in South and Southeast Asia. We publish uh, scholarly uh, uh, articles in the annals of the New York Academy of Sciences. And indeed, uh, we are now developing a, a set of new initiatives from fellowships to the International Science Reserve that I'll talk about later perhaps if, um, if you're interested, uh, which expand even the provenance and, uh, and portfolio of the Academy in areas that, uh, that I find very, very uh, important. And of course, I came to this role uh, just at the point at which the pandemic shut the world down. And we all realized at that point, everyone everywhere around the world, not only how important science is, but how important it is to find ways to communicate science in much more effective ways to the public. Uh, because in fact, of course, uh, we're encountering both the miracle of science, but also the predicament of uh, growing distrust about scientific expertise, about scientific discovery. Uh, and it's uh, in some ways uh, a, a time when the Academy's work and uh, role is more important than ever before. Thank you, Nick. Uh, that was uh, really a comprehensive um, response to what the Academy stands for 
uh, its mission for science for good. In fact, that was one of the reasons it attracted me as well, uh, just to be a part of the Board of Governors and uh, see it in closer circles and hopefully uh, help uh, help make that impact. Advanced scientific research, education, policy, I think, you know, the confluence of all these three. You know, what uh, really um, intrigued me is one of the op-eds you recently wrote about uh, the two cultures of science and humanity, how they have to reconcile, and you kind of a little bit touched upon it. The resistance to the knowledge generated by science um, in some ways has to be overcome with the help of humanities. And um, you kind of seen both sides, you know, in, in a way. Uh, and in some ways, this has got tested in our health uh, crisis as societies which uh, really coped up with COVID-19 were the ones which actually worked on the confluence of science and humanity. Um, so I kind of wanted to, um, you know, um, get your views on how do you bring these two cultures together and what, what can the academy do in this mission? So, Ravi, I'm going to go back a little bit. My first teaching job was actually at Caltech. Uh, and I was hired there to teach Asian civilization to these extraordinarily brilliant young students who were, for the most part, majoring in physics, chemistry, and engineering, uh, and, and biology and the biological sciences. But when I was at Caltech, I got to know a number of its luminous faculty, uh, Nobel laureates like Richard Feynman and Murray Gell-Mann and Max Delbruck and others. And I realized that uh, these scientists, the scientists at the top of their game in every possible way. We're just so interested in learning uh, about literature, philosophy, uh, cultures of different parts of the world, history, and uh, they themselves uh, didn't live in uh, a kind of bubble of science that was a separate culture from that of other fields and disciplines. But as I moved around from university to university, Michigan, Columbia, Berkeley, I found that what C.P. Snow, uh, great British author and commentator and public intellectual in the 1950s and 60s said in his infamous Reed lectures of 1959, namely that there are two cultures on all university campuses and we have to break those two cultures down, uh, was absolutely correct. Uh, because once you really get into a major research university, you find that if you live in the humanities or even humanistic social sciences, you have almost no connection with uh, with your uh, with your colleagues in, in the sciences and vice versa. Uh, now, just to go back to what I said about Columbia, one of the things that I loved about being the vice president and dean of the faculty was that I had this chance to, because I had departments of chemistry, biology, sustainable development, et cetera, reporting into my office. I had the opportunity to learn what they were doing. And I saw again that there were all kinds of connections, but connections that were hard to make because of this problem of two cultures. Uh, in my own academic work, I've worked between two different fields, but I've always been interested in trying to mix and match the disciplines, to get different disciplinary silos to break down and connect and communicate much better with each other. Uh, and so in the biggest scheme of things in the university context anyway, the effort to break down these two cultures of the sciences and the humanities or the arts seemed to me to be absolutely critical. Uh, and, uh, and I've been uh, uh, thinking about this, therefore, you know, for my entire academic career, beginning uh, with Caltech, but in particular when I went into academic administration. How can you make better connections? And so at Berkeley, when I was chancellor, I, I sponsored and um, led a data science initiative 
where we were trying specifically to bring humanists and social scientists together with computer scientists and computational biologists and others who were, uh, who were doing work in data analytics, bring them together and show them that they had a lot to learn from each other. And in fact, of course, in the present age, uh, you can't really keep the two apart since algorithms are everywhere and, uh, and, and uh, computational thinking is a critical part of all thinking, including critical thinking. So, uh, so we, we, we sponsored that. I sponsored another set of initiatives in neuroscience that again connects the study of, uh, of, of, of consciousness with the study of the, of the organ, the brain. Uh, and I realized that, you know, there are ways, in fact, to break these two cultures down, but they do remain for, to a very large extent as separate uh, cultures on, on college campuses. And students who then go to study at university tend to either go into the sciences or they go into uh, uh, arts and humanities. And we need to, uh, to really work against that. Uh, uh, researchers, scholars have to be able to work together. Students have to be able to see a more synoptic view of knowledge. And all of this came to a, uh, to a head in a way during the pandemic. Uh, we realized that we had some of the most, in fact, we have the, the leading biological scientists in the world here in the United States, many of them working in our university uh, departments and laboratories. But, uh, you know, that work uh, to develop uh, the basis for mRNA vaccines that were then developed by Pfizer and, and Moderna uh, was nothing short of miraculous in terms of uh, coming up with vaccines that are just remarkably effective against COVID-19. But you can't necessarily, even once you make those vaccines, make people take them or wear masks or understand social distancing. I mean, it's been a wake-up call, I think, for, uh, for science and scientists uh, to realize that science can't do it alone. Uh, and, and, and so uh, this is a moment when I've been thinking a lot about the two cultures and went back to C.P. Snow and his writings and thought it was time to really identify this problem again and try to get to the point where we can overcome it. Uh, because in fact, uh, uh, indeed, almost every one of our challenges, whether it's a local challenge, whether it's a specific issue that we're dealing with, or whether it's a global challenge from a pandemic to climate change, to uh, uh, cyber attacks and uh, the threats that they pose, uh, you're going to have to have people working together from every possible disciplinary background, not just from disciplines, but also from institutions. And you need people in the private sector, you need people in government, you need people in, uh, in, in universities and in other kinds of nonprofits to figure out how to work together. Uh, the resources that these different kinds of institutional sectors can bring to bear on any one of these issues uh, is, uh, is, is extraordinary, but also uh, hugely benefited by working alongside these other, these other sectors. And again, to the question of the New York Academy, the Academy is an important institution precisely because it convenes people from the university, from the corporate world. We have membership on our board from a number of big pharma companies, uh, from, uh, from foundations and nonprofits, you know, from all kinds of institutional backgrounds. And it's that uh, uh, convening function that we use to try to bring better people together to bring science to bear on the public good. That's so well said and so well put. In fact, um, um, in the world we are all living in now, very interdependent, very interconnected. 
the value is actually at that intersection of these disciplines. In fact, in, in a small way, uh, Infosys is evangelizing the role of uh, non-STEM disciplines in digital technologies. And uh, we, are, we are finding it to be very exciting, you know, especially in the age where machines are going to do so much of problem solving, the human endeavor has to be finding new problems. And that will come from very distinctively different disciplines. So we are we are experimenting with uh, graduates from liberal arts and um, anthropologists and historians to be a part of uh, our uh, our digital talent pool. Uh, switching gear, one of the other unique things, uh, Nick, uh, you got to the academy, uh, very unique, very noble, is the International Science Reserve. Um, uh, completely conceptualized by you and uh, with the partnership with IBM, the academy is uh, wanting to harness the power of uh, science to participate uh, in an interdisciplinary uh, response to major global crisis in the future. Uh, I think um, COVID-19 taught us that uh, humanity can be very slow when you actually have to bring different disciplines together for a transnational crisis. Uh, tell us a little bit about the International Science Reserve. I find this to be very unique and uh, very novel. Yeah, well, thank you for asking. I was hoping you would you would ask me more about the uh, International Science Reserve. And it is uh, it's something that we are deeply committed to in the academy and which uh, we are beginning to figure out how to put together. But the idea behind it uh, comes, in fact, out of a very successful effort during the pandemic uh, to try to uh, figure out a different way to fast track research that was specifically uh, uh, about some way to, uh, to mitigate the, the pandemic itself, to deal with COVID. And it's the High Performance Computing Consortium that was set up uh, uh, in the first instance by uh, Dario Gill, who's on our Board of Governors, who's a fellow governor with you. He's the head of research at IBM. But he brought in a number of different technology companies. He worked with national laboratories. He worked with universities. He worked with the White House, with the Office of Science and Technology Policy to put together uh, uh, effectively a kind of panel of experts who took proposals and very quickly, if they seemed to be worth pursuing, matched research proposals with excess or surplus computational capacity, uh, again, usually in a national lab. Uh, in order to fast track the research and uh, provide uh, computational power that no uh, single researcher was able to get without the benefit of the HPCC. This was something that was stood up within weeks of the pandemic. At the same time, we know from the pandemic that we were not ready. Uh, there were uh, a number of different pandemic response units, including uh, in the government in, in Washington that had not been well tended. Uh, and overall, as you look across uh, not just uh, different kinds of agencies in the US, but internationally, uh, we'd have to give most of the institutions that exist a pretty low grade when it comes to the response that they uh, made to the pandemic. So we've learned a lot during this pandemic. And one of the things that we decided at the Academy that is really important uh, at, this, at this moment is not to forget what we've learned and to act on what we've learned. So the idea is to uh, set up a kind of network, even a kind of network of networks, to uh, uh, effectively create a database of all the scientific experts and resources and institutional 
laboratory, computers, et cetera, uh, kinds, of, uh, kinds of resources that would be necessary in the event of another global catastrophe. Now, it could be another pandemic, but it could also be something very different. Uh, it could be a climate change-induced flood or a climate change-induced uh, uh, heat wave that causes uh, massive interconnected wildfires. It could be a cyber attack or some other kind of uh, attack on our uh, electricity and, and, and computer grid, even from solar flares that some scientists tell me are due to happen any, any year now, uh, which would shut down uh, the energy grid, the transportation grid. Uh, and what we know from the pandemic is that we simply are not well positioned to bring all the different kinds of important resources and experts together in the time that you need to uh, do so in the event of a major, a major catastrophe. And we've seen that catastrophe and we've realized we fell short uh, in responding well to it. So the International Science Reserve is in the first instance, a kind of annotated, uh, almost LinkedIn for, uh, for science and scientific resources. So we know who's doing what, where, if the catastrophe is one of the things I mentioned, who you would call. Uh, but it's also an effort to not just have a network, but to actually uh, uh, prepare that network for real emergencies by conducting a series of readiness exercises, scenario uh, exercises that allow us to test uh, how well this network or network of networks might work in the event that we really need to deploy it. And, uh, and, and we have a lot of interest. We had a, a wonderful uh, evening recently where we had representatives from uh, Schmidt Futures, from the Sloan Foundation, from the Rockefeller Foundation, and from a number of different companies as well, uh, and, uh, and, and, and many more expressing interest, uh, to pitch in. Uh, now, when the High Performance Computing Consortium worked, the computer resources were made available for free. People suspended normal uh, uh, concerns about intellectual property. Uh, you know, people were sharing preprints pre of scientific research without, without worrying about uh, patents or, um, uh, or, or claiming ownership of these things. And people were sharing their expertise, and they were, in the case of the HBCC, actually sharing computational, significant surplus computational capacity. We think the same thing can happen with the ISR. We think it's, a, it's, 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 it's an institution that is, uh, that is new in its formulation and which is necessary for our time. Uh, in the wake of World War II, we saw Vannevar Bush calling for a major investment on the part of the federal government in the US in, in, in serious research in the sciences. And we saw the National Science Foundation come out of that. Then we saw NASA and DARPA come out of the Cold War. Well, out of the pan pandemic, we also think that new institutions have to be built. This isn't going to be the only one. We're not trying to replace many of the wonderful things that are coming up, including pandemic response uh, or preparedness uh, institutes and initiatives as a result of the experience of the pandemic. But what we wanna do is be able to connect them, uh, to know where they are, know how to uh, mobilize them, uh, know how to bring them together. Again, one of the great strengths of the Academy is our convening power. Uh, and then of course, really try to figure out how to make these networks work uh, in the event that something like this happens again, which we know will be the case. Nick, thank you so much. That was um, such a noble and innovative approach. Um, 
you know, personally, I, I have, and I've got always enriched interacting with you and deep learning about uh, a variety of uh, topics uh, of great interest. Um, thank you so much for your uh, uh, for your huge impact you've made to the academy in the last uh, one plus years since uh, you've been on board. And uh, thank you for joining us today for this uh, wonderful conversation. Well, Ravi, I want to say that, uh, first of all, it's a delight to talk with you. Uh, we are thrilled that you uh, joined our Board of Governors. Uh, we've had some wonderful conversations, and the uh, truth is that Infosys is supporting a number of different projects in our education programming, which we're very grateful for. Uh, and of course, we support all the work that Emphasis is doing in the areas of education and skilling. Uh, and we think there are all kinds of there as well as across uh, all the other kinds of things that we're doing, including the International Science Reserve. So thank you, Ravi, for your leadership. Uh, and I look forward to many years of close collaboration with you and with Emphasis as we try to build uh, ways in which we can uh, really advance the public good and make the world a better place. Thank you, Nick. Uh, thanks for joining us today.